Just to fill you in, if you haven't been here in a while, we're just showing you that Esther is a very prophetic book, a true historical event, but in addition to that, that it is, I mean, you can hardly go a verse without seeing a parallel that uh, Haman is a picture of the devil, that King Ahasuerus is a picture of God the Father, Esther is a picture of Israel, or the church, and then we see that uh, Mordecai is going to be a picture of Jesus. And it is incredible how prophetic the whole thing is all the way through. I think if you've been here for the first four, uh, you're seeing that. Anyway, so let's begin here in chapter 6, verse 1. It says, That night the king could not sleep. So we ordered, ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. Now it's interesting, it just says here that he couldn't sleep in the New King James, but in the Greek translation, the Septuagint, scripture still, it tells us the Lord took sleep from the king, telling us really ultimately why he couldn't sleep. God was scheming, God was doing something here. And just, you know, I think about that a lot sometimes at night when I can't sleep and he wakes me up. I think, Lord, what do you want me to be doing right now? Who am I supposed to be praying for? That there's a reason for it. So in the Septuagint, it actually talks about God. The Septuagint, the, the, yes. And the Septuagint has a lot more to it than the Masoretic text. So if you can look at the Greek uh, translation of, or the, just the Septuagint of Esther, you're going to find like more chapters even, like a lot more to it. So it's, it's very interesting. Um, but anyway, it explains why he was awake, because, yeah, the Lord had taken sleep from him. We just don't get to see it in the, from the Masoretic text. Psalm 12, 121, verse 1 says, I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Keep in mind, Ahasuerus is a picture of God. And God never sleeps. The picture here that we're seeing is revealing salvation with him is because he's not sleeping. He's always watching out for us. And the Psalms is telling us that, in, in essence, God is not sleeping, he's not slumbering, but he's always an ever-present help in, for Israel, for us, all the time. And so, again, this is just an analogy, but that's what we see here. The king asked for the book to be read as well. What is that book? Well, it's a record of history. In essence, we've got a book. It's a book of his story, right? And it's kind of interesting to me that it is from that book, in essence, that God will judge us. Because it is the Ten Commandments that are written in there. He's going to, uh, you know, the message of the gospel is in there. The message of salvation is in that book. And we're going to see that God will do the exact same thing that King Ahasuerus is doing here in essence. When we go to Revelation chapter 20, verse 12, 
it says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the book. Books, plural. So, before judgment is passed out, God is given books that are opened up, and it's because of what's written in those books that there is going to be not only judgment that will come about, but also a blessing of salvation, ultimately, for Mordecai. And so the same pattern is seen here. I'm going to show you another example in Daniel 7, verse 9. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him, ten thousands time, ten thousands stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch, because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. Now this is a picture of an end time judgment. We see the Antichrist, all of that going on. But again, there's this courtroom that's being seated. Books are being opened. And from those books, we're going to see blessings being given and judgment being handed out to this horn that speaks boastfully. But first we're going to see that this horn that speaks boastfully, this Antichrist, the devil you might say, is going to be given authority. Look as it continues here. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. One of the blessings that we're seeing that's going to happen because of King Ahasuerus reading these, this book uh, of history is Mordecai is going to be elevated and going to be given authority, ultimate authority. Well, that's exactly what we see in Romans and in the New Testament and in the Old Testament talking about Jesus. All authority has been granted to Jesus. And that's what's going to happen here. Now, initially we're seeing that the devil has this authority. We'll talk about that more as we go. But it's going to be stripped from him and given to the one whom it rightfully belongs. Now, I am going to back up just a little bit on these books were opened. Notice that there's the book of life, and then there's books. I personally, based on my understanding of this and what we see in the, in the Bible without doing a whole Bible study on it, is the book of life is where your name will be written if you have faith in Yeshua. The other books are the ones that are recording the the deeds of people. And without Yeshua, your deeds are not good. And therefore, they are the ones that are going to bring them and cast them to hell. But the book of life is the one that judges salvation in, in essence. Now, it could be that some of these deeds, all I know is this, that even your good deeds are being recorded. 
whether that's in the book of life or it's just your name there, I don't know. But the point being is there's some for both, the good and the bad, the righteous and the unrighteous. So works do matter. We've talked about that many times here before. Not for your salvation, but for the blessings that will be handed out to you. Um, verse 2 of Esther then. It was found recorded that, there, or that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway who had conspired to assassinate King Ahasuerus. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. So, the deeds of Mordecai get the attention of the king. Just as the deeds of Yeshua are basically get the attention of his father. When we read the Old Testament, <coughs> as I said before, it's important that we're looking for Jesus in everything because he is everywhere and if we don't do that we lose meaning and oftentimes we're just going to get like the the physical but not the spiritual message that's supposed to be there and that's what happens with the law a lot when you know people are often telling me you know what oh, are we supposed to stone our kids now when they don't obey you know that's because they don't they're not getting the full point we'll talk about that after we're done with Esther we're gonna get into some of those things and you will see the spirit of that law and how it does all point to Yeshua there are reasons for those things and they are valid and they are good and it's just that without seeing Yeshua in them you only get this surface physical understanding of things and that's where legalism comes from frankly but, again, we're not going to get into that. I just want to point it out for now. So I want to take you to Matthew and show you just an example of God the Father recognizing the deeds of Yeshua, the deeds of, you know, uh, his son here. In Matthew 17, 4, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. This is when they're going up on the Mount of Transfiguration. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. I think that would have been an amazing thing to hear. That validation, you know, of this thundering voice saying, this is my son. I am pleased with him. In essence, that is what Ahasuerus is saying. Mordecai, he, he spared my life. I want to bless him. And later he's going to say, listen to Mordecai. I'm putting him in charge. I'm giving him authority. So, um, what follows the deeds pleasing the Father? Salvation. When you do things that please the king, the king brings salvation ultimately. Not that the deeds earn them, but we're seeing that that's the order of how things happen here. Okay. Verse 4, the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had set up for him. 
Now remember, while that horn was speaking boastfully as Daniel was watching, while this horn thinks he's got the world by the tail, while he thinks that he's got the authority, everything's about to turn on him. And that's the same thing happening here with Haman. He's coming in all happy because I'm going to ask the king to impale Mordecai. We're going to get this over. I'm excited. I am proud. The king loves me. Esther loves me. Pride. Verse 5, his attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with the royal crest placed on its head. Now I remember reading this a number of times thinking, man, I'd ask for something different. I'd ask for more than that. But with Haman being a picture of the devil, is that not exactly what the devil wants? He doesn't care about stuff. He says, I will raise my throne. Uh, I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly. I, you know, will raise my throne above the clouds. He wants to be God. He wants to have God's seat. He wants God's authority. That is exactly what he wants. He wants to wear the robe of God, in essence, the glory. And that's, I mean, I don't think you can get a more spitting image of the devil than Haman here, what Scripture tells us. So, He's proud, he's boastful, just like that lawless one of Daniel. And he thinks that he should be the one that's honored. Today, Daniel Joseph was talking about Cain and Abel. And how Cain, you know, God says, listen, if you do well, then you will be blessed. If you just obey and what does Cain do? Cain goes and talks with his brother, Abel, and then goes and kills him. And he kind of shows that the Targum, the Aramaic translation of Scripture, actually record the, the conversation that went on. In essence, though, you can even see it in the Scripture, Cain, rather than repenting of his sins, blamed God. It's God's fault that I'm in this position. God is not the person who he claims to be. He, he's unjust. He's, uh, he, I can't think of the word, par partial to, you know, people. And as a result, ungodly people never look inward at themselves. They're always blaming somebody else. That's why he kills Abel. It's Abel's fault. Abel was righteous, he was jealous and envious of that, so he kills him rather than looking at himself. That's exactly what's going on here. Haman is so proud and boastful, he thinks that he's the one 
that should be honored. He can't look inwardly to see his problems. All he sees is, I deserve this. Why wouldn't God want to honor me? How dare God not honor me? Kind of like a seeker-sensitive church today. Right? How dare God not welcome everybody? Uh, well, that's not who God is. God is a just God. And so, yeah, there are people that he's going to say, just like Cain, do well and God will commend you. But if you do not do well, then you're going to pay the price for it. Well, verse 9, it continues. He says, Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. You can just see Haman just thinking, This is going to be awesome. In essence, they're going to bow down and they're going to be... He's riding on this authority, coming on a horse. Anyway, it goes on here. In verse 10, Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for. And you can just see him just... <gasps> Mordecai the king. <gasps> Mordecai the Jew. Or Mordecai the Jew, yeah, thank you. Who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. Boy, talk about a bubble bursting there. So a robe and a horse are the two elements here, though, that were bestowed upon the person that the king, God, wanted to honor. Is it coming together yet? Revelation 19. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse. When God comes back, he is, or Jesus, he is riding on a horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. Mordecai was faithful and true to the king. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. And so here comes Yeshua on the horse on the with a robe. The very thing Haman wants. So I think anyway a, a strong, strong parallel. Now the other interesting thing is that in this text, this is where Yeshua is going to put the wicked to shame here in Revelation. And that is about what Mordecai is going to do. Is Haman is mortified because... He's being put to shame as the king gets the authority that he thought he was going to get. Same exact scenario. Verse 11. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on the horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief. Where's Haman go? Home. Mordecai to the king's gate. Always watching, always protecting. But the devil 
is going back to his place. That's going to be very significant here. Um, Isaiah 14 is another passage, kind of like Ezekiel 28, that talks about Satan. And we see what his doom is going to be and a little bit of why he is judged. So Isaiah 14.4 says this, speaking of the king of Babylon, but as a picture of the devil. Take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say how the oppressor has ceased. The golden city ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers. He who struck the people in wrath with a continual stroke, he who ruled the nations is in anger, is persecuted and no one hinders. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. So in other words, what's going on here is in, in Isaiah is the Lord is breaking the staff or the scepter or the power of the wicked. Haman is the one in authority here. Haman's wearing the signet ring of the king right now. He has been given authority. The devil right now has the signet ring of God. We've talked about this before. Right? When God created Adam and Eve, Adam had complete authority until sin came into the world. Then that dominion went to the devil, which is why in the New Testament we hear that John says that the prince of this world now stands condemned. It is why that the devil in Matthew 4 could take Yeshua up on the mountain and say, all these kingdoms I'll give to you because they were his to give. Which is why in Revelation 11 when the seventh trumpet blows it says the kingdom of this world has now become the kingdom of our God. Right now the devil has a signet ring authority that has been given to him by God. Until he comes back when that seventh trumpet blows, the kingdom of this world is going to be given back to the kingdom of God, to its rightful owner. And that's what we're seeing happening here, is God is coming and he is going to break the staff or the scepter of the wicked. It continues here in Isaiah. It says, Indeed, the cypress trees rejoice over you, and the cedars of Lebanon, saying, Since you were cut down, no woodsman has come up against us. Hell from beneath is excited about you to meet you at your coming. It stirs up the dead for you. This one gives me chills. This is a picture, and what he's describing is when the devil goes to hell... The people in hell are going to rise up to meet him. Look at that. All the chief ones of the earth, it has raised up from their thrones all the kings of the nations. In some translations, it's a little easier to kind of pick up on that story, but that's what's happening. Hell from beneath is excited about you. Now why? I remember years ago kind of reading that and thinking, oh, that's weird. It's, just, it's almost like when the devil goes down to hell, everybody still gives him worship. 
Uh-uh. He isn't going to get worship. When it's all done and over, it's over. He gets nothing but shame, humiliation, darkness, the worm that never dies. Remember, when we die today, right now, if you were dead, you don't go to heaven yet. I don't know exactly what it is. I just know it's paradise with Jesus. You're going to be with the Lord. But you don't go to heaven until heaven comes to you. The new Jerusalem, the new earth, and the new heavens. Likewise, the ungodly, when they die today, they don't have the absolute torment that is coming. They do have torment now but not to the extent that it's going to be down the road. Point being is this is not a celebration that's going on here in Isaiah. He is not going to be receiving worship and being able to continue to have his pride be, you know, uh, filled up. I think what's going on here when hell is excited to meet him, they're going to be ticked off at the guy who deceived them. They're going to be mad, and they're excited because you're public enemy number one in hell. So, it's interesting because this is going to parallel what we see with Haman as well. Haman, eventually, when he is killed, everybody's going to rejoice as well. I think Haman, everybody would bow down to him because they were scared of him, but they knew he was a punk. I mean, we see people, you know, that happens a lot throughout history. They're, they're kissing up to him, but they don't like him. Verse 12 of Esther says, Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief. Like I said, he goes back to his place. That's where Satan's going to go, is back to his place, to the depths of hell. You have been cast down to the earth. And then later, you have been cast to the depths, or brought down to the depths. And it's, uh, this is quoted in uh, Isaiah 2, where he says, you've been cast down to the depths. Those who see you stare at you. They ponder your fate. That's what Isaiah is talking about. They're not, oh, hey, it's our king. They ponder his fate. They stare and basically are in awe of what's going to happen to this guy. We know we're in torment. What's going to happen to this guy? So, Haman is rushing home with his head covered in grief. That's exactly what the devil is going to do. He's going to go home beaten. Verse 10 continues and it says this in Isaiah 14. They all shall speak and say to you, Have you also become as weak as we? Have you become like us? Your pomp, your pride, your arrogance is brought low to Sheol, the place of the dead. The sound of your stringed instruments, the maggot is spread under you, the worms cover you. How you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. Verse 11. 
His pomp has been brought low. That's what happened to Haman. All right, verse 13. So he goes home with his head hung low, and it says, And he told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends, everything that had happened to him. His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. It's that interesting statement here again that since Mordecai was a Jew, even they know it. They hate him, but they know it. I think for the most part, people know today, just if you look at Jews in general, there is an anti-Semitic attitude that people hate Jews, but they know <laughs> that they're blessed by God. And they hate that even more. Yeah, it is part of the reason they hate him, I think. Jesus was Jewish, by the way. I think we all know that. But the reason I bring that up is because the, the Messiah had to be a Jew. And here it's saying, Mordecai, before whom you have fallen, is a Jew. Jesus, being a Jew, just another parallel, which maybe isn't that strong of one, but nonetheless it is one. Um, I bring it up because in part, I think this is something the church likes to ignore. Jesus is a Jew. I state that as the obvious, but I don't know if it's that obvious to many people. We've got an anti-Semitic attitude, and forget the Jew, but hey, Jesus was a Jew. Oh, but that was the one good Jew. That's kind of the attitude we have. When you say Jew, at least from my perspective of upbringing in the American church, you, you see that as, it means two different things. It can mean how someone practices their religion, and it can mean a people group they belong to. And certainly it can be both, but it can be separate as well. Yeah, and a third one, in essence, is, I think, to some extent, quote-unquote, Christianity. Because even Jesus said, your, your heritage, your DNA, doesn't make you a Jew. Otherwise, Esau was a Jew, Ishmael was a Jew. What makes you a Jew is the faith of Abraham. So that would be a biblical definition of a Jew. And so I would say Jesus fits that one as well as the DNA one. So, yeah. Good point. But Jesus, Yeshua, is not Messiah if he's not Jewish. If he doesn't come from the line. And uh, we'll, we'll talk about that here in a moment too, just a little bit. Deuteronomy 18.18 18 says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren. This is talking about Moses or to Moses, saying the Messiah would come from the stock of Israel. So, the, the Israelites knew Jesus was going to be coming from them, or the Messiah was coming from them. Let me show you here in the New Testament. On hearing his word, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He is the Messiah. Still others asked, How can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not Scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem? Well, this is just one of many scriptures that we could show you, showing that you know it was going to come from the Jewish line of David. And I, I know you all know that, but I'm going to 
explain why I'm bringing this up here in a minute. But as far as our context of Esther, it is because Jesus was a Jew that the downfall of Satan was inevitable. Because if he wasn't a Jew, he could not be the Messiah and he could not bring down Satan. Does that make sense? I wonder if we would have been on the other side of the New Testament, you know, hadn't happened yet for us, if we would have known where the Messiah was coming from. Because we have the Old Testament today, but we use the New Testament to prove Jesus is your Savior. They didn't have that. They used the Old Testament to prove Jesus was the Messiah. I wonder how many Christians today on the other side of the New Testament would even be able to come close to identifying who the Messiah was. But they knew. The Jews were looking for him. Another example here, Isaiah 7.13. Then he said, Hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? Therefore, O Lord... Or the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Speaking to the house of David coming from there. Jeremiah 23rd, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise up to David a, a branch of righteousness, a tzemek. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. This is one of my favorite verses in regards to certain things because... One of the messages I do is called the stars, God's word in the sky. And I believe wholeheartedly that God put the gospel in the stars. Um, I think that this message has been abused greatly because there are Christians who try to make the stars Christian astrology. And they say, oh, the moon under her feet. And there's Virgo and the moon is under Virgo. And Revelation talks about the moon being under her feet. And so, you know, the Antichrist is going to be happening here in this month. And, you know, no, just, ugh. okay. That's Christian astrology, ultimately. However, Romans says this in chapter 10. It says, Did Israel not hear? Talking about the gospel. Did Israel not hear? Of course they did. Their voice goes into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Whose voice? Whose words? Had to be the prophets, right? I mean, that would give Israel the gospel. Did Israel not hear? Of course they did. Their voice goes into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. The prophets must have been speaking. No, that is a direct quote from Psalm 19, which says, The heavens declare the glory of God. Night after night they pour forth speech, they display knowledge. There is no place where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Romans 10, saying Israel obviously heard the gospel, because the heavens declared the voice. But is that not like what Romans is talking about in the first chapter, where there's just the heavens declared, not necessarily that the gospel is in it, but that just looking at creation has to make you wonder that there's a creator, and if we knock and seek, we will find, and we will answer. And I think in part, absolutely. You know, Romans 1 does say that we can see God's power, qualities, and nature through that which has been made so that men are without excuse just by looking at the creation. But you're saying beyond that, something that is evidence of a narrative of the gospel in, in, the, in the... Absolutely. I am 100% convinced of it. The reason I say that, maybe someday I'll give you the presentation of it, but the nutshell version of it, we have the... 
I can show you pictures in Egypt. I, I don't know if I ever did. The calendar in Egypt shows the constellations. This is from 2000 BC. They're the same constellations we have today. Nothing's changed. Exact same zodiac, everything. We, it's the same around the world. We have this. We even have the names of those stars recorded in different countries, in different languages. They all have the same meaning for the most part. Now, that would make sense with the Tower of Babel. They understood what it was. They spread out, and now they take the meaning of that star. So as an example, in Virgo the Virgin, which is one of the constellations in the Zodiac, the Zodiac is basically one of the, uh, it's the path that the sun takes across the sky. There's a constellation for every month. And so at any given time, you're going to see three of them up there. And then next month, you're going to have one of them gone and a new one up here. But anyway... Virgo, the virgin, the brightest star in there is called Semek, which means branch. Virgo means virgin. The Hebrews don't call her Virgo. That's the Latin, I think. Roman. Roman. Okay. But the uh, Hebrews call her Bethula which means virgin. And so we see, regardless, different countries call her the same thing. Now, none of you are going to go outside, look up at night and go, I see a woman up there, and I think she's a virgin. <laughs> I mean, really? How, how do you get that? It's not because of what it looks like. It's because of the shape, or, or not the, the shape, not because of the shape, but because of the names of the stars. And so when we look at the names that have been recorded throughout history, we see a story that is told in the names of the stars. Now, when we go and see the pictures that are there, that have been there forever, Josephus records that Seth, Enoch, and Adam gave um, the names of those constellations that God gave them such long life to understand that message. Okay, that's just Josephus. But nonetheless, over and over in the sky, you see the gospel being proclaimed. Virgo, Bethula, is a virgin up in the sky. She has a branch in her hand. The reason she has a branch in her hand is because of that brightest star called Semek, which means branch. But that is a very unique word her branch in Hebrew. It is only used four times, and this is one of them. I will raise up to David a semek. Every single time that word semek is used in the Bible, it refers to the Messiah coming. So you tell me, why in the sky do I have a virgin bringing the Messiah? Over and over in the sky, you will see a God figure crushing the head of an evil figure. The names of the stars and the evil figure are always identifying them as somebody evil. And the good guy, you can tell from the names in the stars. Side note, the northern part of the sky, we see the Big Dipper. We see uh, um, oh, uh, the W... Uh, Cassiopeia and... Um, no, Ophiuchus is over here. Uh, anyway, a king and a queen. The whole northern part of the sky is a picture of heaven. All the stars are, will tell you it's a picture of heaven. We see 
the congregation, belonging to the judge, all of that in uh, some of the star names. It's just kind of crazy. But what's neat about it is we see Andromeda and is basically chained up over here. She's a picture of the church over in the northern part of the sky where the heaven is at. She is sitting right next to the king and the wedding banquet of the Lamb is taking place. And then I find it interesting the Bible talks about Satan wanting to ascend above the stars in the north. It's the north that we see as the throne of God in the pictures of the stars. I know that's a lot to just throw out at you without all the proof, but sometime I'll give it to you. Another thing, Daniel. The Magi, how did the Magi know? Oh, look, the king of the Jews is born. Where did they get that from? Go back 400 years and Daniel is made chief of the Magi, it says in the book of Daniel. I believe Daniel knew this stuff, told them, taught them, look, there's a Messiah coming from the star of David, or the, not star of David, but uh, Judah, and the lion of the tribe of Judah, which, by the way, one of the zodiac is a lion, Leo the lion. Um, but bottom line, Daniel probably taught them that. Then they come, ah, oh, that's what we've been waiting for. So I don't want to say that there isn't some truth to some of those stuff, but I think we don't know any of that, and I think you've got to... I just stay completely away from Christian astrology and Christian fortune telling based on, on stars. That's terrible. What I see is no new message that isn't already in Scripture. But it tells you the story of his birth to his second coming in the, in the Zodiac. So sometime I'll give you that presentation. But anyway, what made me think of that is the righteous branch, the Tzemek here. So, off track, bunny trail, but... So anyway, I want to take just another little bunny trail to show you this whole Jesus being a Jew to be the Messiah kind of thing. Uh, I think it was Josh McDowell that talked about this kind of thing here years ago, that when we deal with the prophecy of the Messiah coming, that it's so precise... History records over 40 false messiahs that we know of. None of them could fulfill and do what Jesus did. There were over 60 prophecies quoted by the Jews that the Messiah had to fulfill. And he fulfills every single one of them. We see 333 prophecies in the Old Testament that were fulfilled by Jesus as well but 60 very specific ones by the Jews. You know, we have an address, okay, 2324 Mountain Willow. If that's your address, it's unique, and it's going to get a letter to that mailbox. Prophecy is kind of like that, and Scripture is kind of like that, to give you a very specific thing to show you this is where the Messiah is. This is him. Um, in Galatians 4.4, 4, it says that Jesus would come. Yeshua came in the fullness of time. God sent his son. When it was the right time. Well, let me show you how prophecy is an address. In Genesis 3.16, it identifies the Messiah as being going to be coming from the seed of a woman. 
So everyone else is a seed of a man. Yeshua was not the seed of a man. That's why he was born of a virgin. So right there, you, you, that pretty much nails it. But will a lot of people deny that? We'll, we'll continue here. Genesis 9 says Noah had three sons. All can be traced to one of these three people, all human beings. So that means that since he was going to come from the line of, or just one of those lines, Shem, it had to be two-thirds of the world's population can now be eliminated that the Messiah cannot come from. Going to come from the line of Shem. In Genesis 12, God calls Abraham out of Ur, and he makes them Jews. So now he took out of that one-third of the population, he dices that down even more and says it's going to come from now one of Abraham's descendants, eliminating all the rest of the world. So we've got 50% of the population there removed, of the Jews there even. In Genesis 28, we know that he's supposed to come, uh, Jacob and Esau, God eliminates 50% from the line of Isaac even, saying, Isaac has Jacob and Esau, it's not going to come from Esau, it's going to come here. So our funnel is getting smaller. Jacob has 12 sons becoming the 12 tribes. God eliminates 11 out of 12 of them by saying he would be from the tribe of Judah. Funnel gets smaller. Isaiah 11 eliminates all the family lines of the tribe of Judah except for one family, and that is from the family of Jesse. Man, we're really funneling it. 1 Chronicles 7, within the house of Jesse, there were eight children Seven of them are kicked out of the line of being the, the one, and it's now from David's line. In 1012 BC, uh, in Psalm 22, it says that his hands and feet would be pierced. Way back when Psalms was written. That's 800 years before they even did this kind of crucifixion. Isaiah 9:6 says this man would have a divine nature, he would be a righteous branch. Uh, which, by the way, Nazareth, uh, Netzer, is a word for branch as well. So the fact that he was a Nazarene fits that. Isaiah 52 and 53 said he would be rejected by his own people, but accepted by his enemies. Psalm 41 and Zechariah 11 identify him as being betrayed by a friend by 30 pieces of silver that would be thrown to the ground to buy a potter's field. Micah 5.2 says he's going to come from one city. So now you've taken from the line of David, from all of his, that he's going to come from Bethlehem, from a certain city. So just a coincidence that all of these things could happen, and I'm just giving you some of the you know, bigger ones here. All 60 major prophecies were fulfilled, which is impossible. There was a publishing company out there that gave anyone $1,000 to find anybody who could even just fit 20 of them. Can't. I mean, their, their money was safe. Just getting eight would be one in whatever number that is. 48 would be one in 10 to the 157th power. That's a lot of zeros. When you work with math and statistics, they say 10 to the 50th power is mathematically impossible. So 
I mean, even the lottery doesn't give you, it gives you better odds than 10 to the 50th power. You can't deny. And once again, if you were on the other side of the New Testament, would you have been able to recognize the Messiah? I don't know. Just interesting question. Back to our story here. Uh, get off my rabbit trail. Genesis 12.3 says, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Haman was trying to curse Mordecai, and in essence, then he brought a curse upon himself. It is the same for today. Numbers 23, verse 8, Balaam said, How can I curse those whom God has not cursed? You try to curse Israel, you're going to end up like Balaam, even to this day. So when Zeresh says, Because you know, whom, you know, Mordecai is a Jew, that there's nothing you can do, you're about to fall. She was right. Makes me kind of wonder what kind of woman she was to begin with, to be urging him to do this if she knew that to begin with. You look at history, and this is held true for all of history. You go after them, they just get another festival to celebrate. It's just how it works. John 11:48. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, Fifth, uh, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. I show you this because it's just a beautiful picture of the heritage of those that belong to the Lord. What we have for us. And it amazes me, Caiaphas was an unbeliever. And he even prophesied, God still used him, that Jesus would die, not just for that nation, but for those that were scattered. The children of God scattered abroad. Remember he said, I came only for the lost sheep of Israel, the scattered people. Um, Isaiah 54, 17, No weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. Salvation is the heritage of those who know the Lord. Those who know Mordecai will be saved. So, um, if we jump ahead a couple of chapters here in Isaiah, we see that righteousness is called Yeshua as well. So we know what, who this is. Hebrews 2.14, and then we're going to get back to Esther. And as much then as the children have partaken the flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Fear is stripped away in Yeshua and in his promises. We don't need to fear. And so, if you trust Mordecai, in essence, here in our story, there's no need to fear because God is working. It might seem bleak, but hang in there. All right, back to the story. Esther 6.13 
Um, he told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisors and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom you are downfall, has started as of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You'll surely come to ruin. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. Now, we read that before, but to get us back on track. Um, if you just look at this and you put Jesus in there, He's literally bleeding through the pages. Yeshua is, to me anyway. Since Jesus, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. There's a lot of people out there today mocking Jesus. A lot of people who are making fun of Christianity. And they may not realize it, but their downfall has begun. And they would do well to listen to this because Haman's future will be your future if you continue down that path. Genesis 3.14 says, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the enmity between God's people, who came from Eve, by the way, and the offspring of Satan, which would be Haman, in essence. So this prophecy here is alive and well, not only today, but here in the story of Esther that Satan is going after the seed because Satan knows that is his downfall. And uh, Brad Scott talks a lot about that with the seed and what that means. You see, Satan knew because of this prophecy that his doom was going to come through the seed. And a lot of people believe that's why we see Cain and Abel. That he goes after Cain because... From the beginning, Satan knows I have to destroy the seed. The seed of the promise, because that's where my downfall will come from. And he has tried to do that throughout all of history. It is not an accident that Islam hates Jews and Christians. It's not an accident that all through history that that's been the case, that they've gone after them because of this promise right here. And so that is what Haman is doing. He is wanting to destroy not just Mordecai, but the whole seed, all of it. Because if he can do that, then he knows the Messiah can't come. See, I think Satan knew that that funnel of identifying who the Messiah was, he knew exactly who to go after because he knew that funnel. And he knows it's coming from the Jews. I got to destroy him. So that's the spiritual battle that's going on behind the, the physical story here that Satan knows. So anyway, any thoughts or questions on that? One last thing too, just being cursed more than all the cattle, that 
basically he is cursed above all. That's what Satan is going to be, remember, when they rise up to meet him, because they, they're pondering his fate, because they know he is going to be cursed above all. And Haman, above all, will be cursed here as well. So just another parallel, but anyway. All right, we'll pray. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, just for your word again, and we just pray that, first of all, we pray for your people, that they would come to know you, the Jewish people would understand that you are their Messiah, that they would look on the one whom they pierced and mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. We ask that um, you allow us to be a light and that you just give us the faith to trust in you when the world is falling apart, when the edict is out there to, to bring destruction and it looks like there's no way out, that we would just not fear what the world can do, but rather fear the one who can throw both body and soul into hell. And so help us to just know that you love us and that you are on our side. And let us just be willing to go into the flames, to be a, a Shadrach, a Meshach, and just knowing that you can save. And whether you save or not in this physical body, you have saved and will give us a new body. And for that we give you glory and thanks. In the name, in pre the precious name of Yeshua we pray. Amen.